guys want to open this? Chapter 26. Genesis chapter 26. Genesis 26. Renee, are you going to read this morning? Renee is going to come read all of chapter 26 to us this morning. I'd like to pray for us, and then Renee will read chapter 26 of Genesis. Holy Spirit, I ask you to do a unique and specific work in us this morning as we sit in this room. God, the weeks just fly by. I mean, fly by with so much information week in and week out. But we are here this morning because we believe that when your word is rightly understood and believed and loved and applied, that it will sustain us and that it will help us to live on earth as humans and as followers of Jesus the way that you created us to. And so I pray, Spirit, that you would meet your word this morning and that there would be a big collision and explosion in our hearts this morning as truth and spirit collide within us. I pray you would transform us just a little more. I pray for some aha moments in this room for each one of my friends, that there just be that moment where truth from your word and your spirit meets where they're living right now, their daily life, and it would bring clarity and hope and courage and faith and joy. So minister, Holy Spirit, right now I pray. Protect me from saying things that are not helpful. In Jesus' name, amen. Oh, I'm so sorry. Are we on? <laughs> All right, Genesis 26. Now there was a famine in the land besides the former famine that was in the days of Abraham. And Isaac went to Gerar, to Abimelech, king of the Philistines. And the Lord appeared to him and said, Do not go down to Egypt. Dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you and will bless you. For to you and to your offspring I will give all these lands, and I will establish the oath that I swore to Abraham your father. I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and will give to your offspring all these lands. And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, She's my sister. For he feared to say, my wife, thinking, lest the men of the place should kill me because of Rebekah, because she was attractive in appearance. When he had been there a long time, Abimelech, king of the Philistines, looked out of a window and saw Isaac laughing with Rebekah, his wife. So Abimelech called Isaac and said, behold, she is your wife. How then could you say she is my sister? Isaac said to him, because I thought, lest I die because of her. Abimelech said, What is this you have done to us? One of the people might easily have lain with your wife, and you would have brought guilt upon us. So Abimelech warned all the people, saying, Whoever touches this man or his wife shall surely be put to death. And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. The Lord blessed him, and the man became rich and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. 
He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants, so that the Philistines envied him. Now the Philistines had stopped and filled with earth all the wells that his father's servants had dug in the days of Abraham his father. And Abimelech said to Isaac, Go away from us, for you are much mightier than we. So Isaac departed from there and encamped in the valley of Gerar and settled there. And Isaac dug again the wells of water that had been dug in the days of Abraham his father, which the Philistines had stopped after the death of Abraham. And he gave them the names that his father had given them. But when Isaac's servants dug in the valley and found there a well of spring water, the herdsmen of Gerar quarreled with Isaac's herdsmen, saying, The water is ours. So he called the name of the well Esek, because they contended with him. Then they dug another well, and they quarreled over that also. So he called its name Sitna. And he moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel over it. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, For now the Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. From there he went to Beersheba, and the Lord appeared to him the same night and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring for my servant Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there Isaac's servants dug a well. When Abimelech went to him from Gerar and Ahazaz, his advisor, and Phicol, the commander of his army, Isaac said to them, Why have you come to me, seeing that you hate me and have sent me away from you? They said, We see plainly that the Lord has been with you. So we said, Let there be a sworn pact between us, between you and us, and let us make a covenant with you, that you will do us no harm, just as we have not touched you and have done to you nothing but good and have sent you away in peace. You are now the blessed of the Lord." So he made them a feast, and they ate and drank. In the morning they rose early and exchanged oaths, and Isaac sent them on their way, and they departed from him in peace. That same day Isaac's servants came and told them, told him about the well that they had dug and said to him, We have found water. He called it Sheba, therefore the name of the city to Beersheba to this day. When Esau was forty years old, he took Judith, the daughter of Beerti, or Beri, the, Hitt- the Hittite, to be his wife, and Basimath, the daughter of Elon, the Hittite, and they made life bitter for, Isaiah, for Isaac and Rebekah. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you. So you may have been listening to Renee read and go, have we read this story before? This sounds familiar. So in similar stories, only in both of those, it's Abraham. Actually, it's Abram and then Abraham. So they're very, very similar stories. Abraham tries to tell everybody that Sarah, in both of those stories, that Sarah is his sister because he's fearful that he's going to die. And then Pharaoh, in the one case, and Abimelech, in the other case, calls him out on it. And then he's takes Sarah back to be his wife, and then he gets all this blessing, and then he goes on his way. So the same story this morning as, last, as those two stories, just swap out the name. Just make it Isaac instead of Abraham or Abram. So why? I mean, those of you guys who read books or maybe have done some writing, you know, if you're going to write a book, you don't say the same thing in two or three different chapters, 
right? You're not going to repeat. You can't like say, oh, in chapter 6, I'm going to say the same thing I said in chapter 2, and then I'll do it again in chapter 12. No, every chapter is going to look different. So why would God, he has all these options of stories, right? I mean, think about it. How many stories could God have put of the life that Abraham or Isaac lived? Why does he tell Moses to pick those three and to make them that repetitive? That's the question that I asked this week. And I feared it's because God wants us to learn something that if he only says it once, we won't learn it. If he says it twice, we still might miss it. But three times, it actually might land on us the way God wants it to land on us. And so I think there's really maybe just two major things, and I don't want to make this too broad, but I certainly think that these stories are repeated, or this, they're still parallel three times over, to show us something about God and how God works in the hearts of people, how God works in the lives of the people that he's in covenant with. And I think it's also to reveal the heart of man. He's trying to show us there's a pattern here. God kind of acts this way. Man often kind of acts this way. And so I think he puts them like this, these three stories so similar, to make that point. So we're, we're not wondering, like, oh, that was just Abraham. Oh, just Isaac acted that way. No, no, there's patterns here. Or, oh, God just did that once. No, God didn't do it just once. God kind of did the same thing in all three stories. So there's patterns here, and I think God wants us to see some of those patterns and some of those behaviors. Now, this story here this morning is really all about a famine. So look at verse 1. It says, now there was a famine in the land. So that, that needs to inform everything we read in this chapter. This chapter really is all about a famine. That's the climate. That's the atmosphere that everything is going on in. Now, I've never lived through a famine. But I would imagine that if I lived through a famine, the topic of a conversation everywhere would be about the famine. Sort of like COVID. Only in this case, there was no food. So I think it was a really big deal. I think everything they tweeted and did on Facebook was trying to figure out whose fault it was that they were in a famine. Why didn't the government see it coming? How are we going to get out of the famine? Like, this is it. It's famine talk all the time. What's going to happen? Are we all going to starve to death? Are things going to start growing? What are we going to do? And so read this chapter with me this morning as we go through it. With famine in mind, it's all about famine. And we're supposed to see how God acts in the world, when the world faces famine, and then how does man respond in a world that faces famine? And what I want to do is I want to, I want to take a little freedom this morning, and I want to put the word famine in quotes. Because Lord willing, we will not walk through a famine in the next month or year. We could, but I have a feeling that right now, you and I are walking through other sorts of famines. I know there's just things in your world or in your personal life that aren't going the way you want them to go, or there's a lack of resources for you. I mean, that's the famine, right? And so for all of us in this room, individually, there's probably different levels of ways that you're walking through some kind of famine. There's a resource, there's something you want, something you desire, something you need that just isn't there. And the same in our world. Our world, there's things, there's resources, problems to be solved, wisdom that's needed that just isn't there. And so this morning, we're going to talk about the word famine, but as I use the word famine, I want you to be thinking about the world you live in and the famines that you see around you, or your own personal life and where you sense, like, there's a famine, something's not right, there's, I'm short of resource, things aren't going like I wish they were going. So that's how I want us to kind of apply this morning's message, both, both in the sense of our culture and for you personally, because you may be in an emotional famine. Those emotions just aren't happening like you need them to. 
Or maybe you're in a financial famine or a relational famine or a decision-making famine. I don't know. There's something that you just wish could be solved or fixed and you seem like, feel like you're left hanging. So what does God do during these times? What does God do during these times? And how are we to respond when there's a famine in our land? Well, this chapter, I think, is going to give us seven famine lessons. So seven famine lessons, if you will. Seven things we're going to see about God and man that I think can apply to you guys, to us, in everyday life, when the resources aren't there, when we're handling a crisis, a problem, a difficulty, lacking what we might need. So the first one I see is this. When your world is in a famine, God's solution may not make sense. I struggle with how to, how to word every one of these. So as I talk, if you're like, oh, that's not how we should have said it, you take your notes and cross it out and put it the way you think it should have been said. That's the only way I could think of. So <laughs> when your world's in a famine, God's solutions don't always make sense. Look at verse 2 with me. God, okay, you're in a famine. No food. God appears to Isaac. And what's the very first thing God says to Isaac? Look in your Bible. Somebody read it. Tell me, what are the fir- what's the first thing that God says to Isaac? Do not go down to Egypt. Okay, do you understand that that is the opposite of what Isaac needs to hear? Because you know what's in Egypt? Food. That's why Abraham went to, went to Egypt, because there was food there. So this, uh, this week, I looked on the internet to find out about the Nile River, because I assumed that probably had something to do with it. And lo and behold, there's this thing called the uh, History Channel. Here's what it says about ancient Egypt. So they said the Nile provided ancient Egypt with fertile soil and water for irrigation. It says, dark, it says the Nile's waters carried rich dark sediment from the Horn of Africa northward and deposited in Egypt as the river flooded its banks each year in late summer. That surge of water and nutrients turned the Nile Valley into productive farmland and made it possible for for the Egyptian civilization to develop in the midst of a desert. So if you need food, where are you going? You're going to Egypt. So God's first thought is, don't go to Egypt. What's Isaac's first thought? I'll just go to Egypt. So it's, I'll just go to Egypt. And God says, yeah, don't go there. Don't do it. Now, I wonder how often God thinks don't go there to our plans for our famine. I wonder, I wonder how many times we face a famine of some kind and God's response to our knee-jerk reaction is don't go there, don't do it. That's not really where you want to be. See, God does this for Isaac, but then he also tells Isaac what to do in verse 2. So it's don't go to Egypt, Instead, and this, must, this is going to be really good news, I can hear it, dwell in the land of which I shall tell you. And then he says, sojourn in this land. Okay, so I, I am in the land of famine. I've got the land of plenty in Egypt. God says, don't go here. Instead, I want you to stay here. I mean, that makes no sense. I mean, especially if you consider, isn't God the one that kind of makes the flowers grow, makes the plants grow and waters and causes food to happen. Why wouldn't he just say, look, I've done all that. You just go there and you get it and everything will be okay. But he doesn't. And so this leaves Isaac in a dilemma. Had Egypt, plentiful food. Sojourn right here in a time of famine. Wander aimlessly in my current famine food-free location 
or go to Egypt and eat as much as I want. Maybe you've been there. There's a famine in your land. You're lacking something you need, and as you consider your options, you go, option one makes sense, yet there's something in you that knows it just really isn't a good option. Maybe it's not God's option, but your only other option is just to sit and wait and see if God does something, just to stay where you are. I mean, that's the dilemma that Isaac is facing. He, he, he doesn't know what to do. He's, he's trapped. God tells him to do what seems very very strange. But then there's a wild card in the whole thing. Because God keeps building a sentence here for Isaac. Do not go down to Egypt, verse 2. Dwell, dwell in the land of which I shall show you. Sojourn in this land, and I will be with you. And I'll be with you. I'll be with you. See, when your world is in a famine, what you really need isn't Egypt. You need more God. You need more God. And these words, you know, we read, I read too fast, and I don't let them land on me like they should. These words, I will be with you, are the most beautiful encouraging, breathtaking combination of words that could ever fall on human ears. The God of the universe saying, I will be with you. I'll be with you. In other words, Isaac, what you need more than a trip to Egypt is me. And I'm offering to be with you in your famine. I mean, these words really are meant to be a game changer for Isaac. They're meant to reorient how he thinks. I can head to Egypt with plentiful food, or I can sojourn in this place of famine, but do it with God. Go to Egypt with fork in hand, or sojourn with God on my side. That's a game changer. That should inform his decision. See, God's testing Isaac. God is asking him to believe that his presence and his blessing is more reliable than the tried and true food in Egypt. This is predictable. It's stable and secure, this food in Egypt. You know what you need, though? You need me. You, you need to sojourn with me. See, this chapter may be about famine, and it is, and you should have in your Bible the word famine circled at the top because that's key to understanding the chapter. But it's also about God being with you in the famine. It's about God being with you. In fact, this chapter, I don't know if you caught it, we see that God is with Isaac in the past, present, and future. So I don't often tell you what to highlight or circle in your journals, but here's where I would go. Verse 1, future. God says, I will be with you. Go to verse 24. What's it say? What does God say? I am with you. So verse 1, I will be with you in the future. Verse 24, I am with you right now in the present. And then look at verse 28. These three different men say, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. 
See, see, God promises to be with Isaac in his past, in his present, and in his future. He's saying, you can trust me, Isaac. This chapter has helped to build our trust that God has always been with you. He's with you right now, and he will be with you. Now, a little theology moment, because we know that God is omnipresent, right? God is everywhere, equally, all the time. All of God is always everywhere. There's nowhere that all of God is not, ever. That makes sense. But what God is offering Isaac here is not merely his omnipresence. You see, God is not saying, Isaac, because I'm everywhere, I'll be with you. It's not what God is offering. God is personally saying to Isaac, Isaac, in your famine, I will be with you. I'll be with you. I'm going to be with you. My eyes are on you. I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be close to you. I'm going to carry you. I'm going to watch out for you. And I'm going to be close to you so that I can bless you in your time of need. Those three verses, the past, present, and future, verse 3, verse 24, and verse 28, not only does it say, I will be with you, but God's purpose of being with him is to bless. It's to bless. Now, as good theologians, you know that God is everywhere equally all the time to sustain life. He's keeping you acting like you, your body, the molecules in this room, all acting like he created them to act. And then God is everywhere always to do one of two other things, either to punish or to bless. So it's not always good to have God say, I'll be with you. (laughs) But in this case, God follows it up with, and I will bless you. And so in all three of these, in verse 3, he says, I will be with you and I will bless you. Verse 24, I am with you and will bless you. And then verse 28 and 29 back to back say, the Lord has been with you and you are now the blessed of the Lord. So this combination of God is with you and God will bless you. God is with you and God is blessing him. Now you know that we need to be careful to not take everything God says to an individual in the Bible and claim it for us. That's a dangerous thing or we'd all be building arcs (laughs) and doing other strange things. But in this case, I think we can claim this for us because throughout redemptive history, throughout our Bibles, God is on a move to be with us. I, I jokingly told Alex, let's sing a Christmas song. Right? Emmanuel, God with us. Right? All the songs we sing about God being with us. I mean, that was, that's, the redemptive history is to bring us to God. That's why Jesus died. First Peter tells us that. He, he died to bring us to God. In other words, this unifying fact, he wants us to be one with Christ. He puts his spirit in us. There's a unity. The, the whole storyline of the Bible is driving towards us today, living here with the spirit of God in us. So God is with us now in a very different way even than he was with Isaac, knowing that one day, what we already talked about this morning in singing, we'll go to heaven where we'll be with God in another whole dimension, another whole level when we see him face to face. But that's the point. God's doing this. He's bringing us into more deeper, more robust, more clear understanding relationship with him. And as that happens, we're transformed more and more into his image. And so we see this throughout scripture. One of my faves is from Hebrews 4, says this, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of famine, time of need. Draw near. 
The invitation is draw near to God. James tells us to draw near to God and he will draw near to you. See, what we need in our time of famine is God. And so that's exactly what Isaac does in verse 25. It takes him a while. But in verse 25, it says that Isaac called upon the name of the Lord. See, it's a two-way street, isn't it? God is always with you. If you are a genuine child of God, God is always with you. But we don't want to know that God is just with us. We want to know that God is near. And the nearness of God comes when we call upon the name of the Lord. He's there, and we do our part, and we pursue him. He's there, ready and eager and willing, just waiting for us to pursue him, to encounter him, to go after him, because he's there. Not like he's running in the other direction. Ha ha, try to find me. He's there, but he invites us to call on him, to draw near to him, to walk with him. And so that's what Isaac does. And with that comes blessing. He is blessed. So I want to talk about the blessings that he gets here. And I'm going to word it this way. When your famine, when your world is in a famine, I'd say this way, God is ready to show off. When your world is in a famine, God is ready to show off. He's ready to do stuff to show you that he's with you and to show you that he wants to bless you. And so God is ready to show off to Isaac by blessing him with the things that the world around him is lacking. Basically, food, wealth, and wells. That's what he's lacking. So, verse 12, you guys just look there. It begins with this, And Isaac sowed in that land and reaped in the same year a hundredfold. Okay, remember, we're in a famine. This is like tractor trailers pulling into Safeway when there's been no food for months. And this is hundredfold. So he, he's got a, a big crop of food ready. And then it says, the Lord blessed him, just to make sure you don't think that he's just really good at growing fruits and vegetables. I mean, why is it not? Why otherwise would it be inserted there? Don't give Isaac the credit. He's blessing him. He's blessing him. Verse 13, and the man became rich. And just in case you want to know how rich, well, and gained more and more until he became very wealthy. What kind of wealth? He had possessions of flocks and herds and many servants. So the Philistines envied him. So the dude is rich. In the time of famine, he has food. In a time of famine, he has flocks and herds and servants to prepare the food. So wealthy that the Philistines look on and go, that's not fair. I want some of that blessing. How come he's getting it? They're envious. They want what he has. And then the next whole section, verses 17 to 22, is so exciting, isn't it? Dig a well. Get into a conflict with my neighbor. My neighbor takes my well. I go dig another well. My neighbor wants that well. He takes my well. I go dig another well. I mean, what on earth is this doing here? Like, what is the point of giving so much ink and so much time, so many verses to talk about wells being dug, conflicts that come out of it, and then more wells being dug again? Why? Why is this there? What is the point? Here's the point. The point is that every time Isaac or his men dig a well, they hit water. That's the point. And if their famine is because there's no water, and that's why you would go to Egypt where there is water, then every time you strike water, that's a really big deal. 
And it seems like Isaac keeps doing it over and over again. And it seems like the others aren't successful in their well digging, and that's why they're stealing Isaac's wells. <laughs> Otherwise, just go dig your own well. They probably would have said, we did. We can't find water. And Isaac's like, well, we'll just dig here, and we'll find water all over again. It seems like that's the point. <laughs> just to make sure the reader knows that this success in well digging is not because Isaac has the ability to know where the water is, God appears to him a second time. In verse 22, and he says the same thing to him again. I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, I am with you. I'll multiply you and your offspring and your servants for Abraham's sake. So he built an altar there and called upon the name of the Lord and pitched his tent there. And there, Isaac's servants, who cares? They dug a well. Just throw that in there at the end of the sentence. God appears, but the story, the little section ends with, and they dug another well. What's the point? The point is that when God's with you and God blesses you, he gives you what you need to survive your famine. That's the point of the story. And so this well thing just keeps going on and on and on. Blessings keep coming on and on and on. When I was a kid, we sang a little song. Oh, wow. Was that because I was going to sing or you know the song? Ahem. <laughs> Count your many blessings, name them one by one. Count your many blessings, see what God has done. You guys know that? All right, so I grew up singing that song. And I thought, that's kind of what's happening here. Isaac's almost kind of being forced into a situation with the help of others to count as many blessings, to, to really name them one by one. So may I suggest that in this case, as Isaac is recounting them, and people just keep coming to him over and over again, uh, we dug another well, we dug another well, and we see it again in verse 32. They dug another well. I mean, it's all over the place in this chapter. There's wells being dug everywhere. Be careful you don't fall into a well when you're reading the chapter, because there's so many. But may I suggest that in your famine, you do the opposite of what the world does and take time to count your blessings. Because that's not what the world does in its famine. But that's what God's people do. Take some time to count your past blessings in your famine. Take some time to think about how God is with you in your current famine. Draw hope from that that God will be with you when you get to the famine that's coming in the next day or week or month or year. I cannot keep track of how many times someone has come and helped me by reminding me of how God has never left me nor forsaken me. How God has been with me, how God has blessed me in the past, how God is with me right now and is blessing me right now, and how he'll certainly then be with me in the future too. He's not going to abandon me later. I think it's meant to increase our faith to count the blessings that God has done. And when God blesses Isaac, I think similar things happen to Isaac. That should happen to us. This is number four. When your world is in a famine, God wants others to see that God is with you. God wants others to see it. And that's why in verse 14, the Philistines envied him. And then look at verses 20 and 29. Abimelech's advisor and his army commander, together with them, it's like the three of them are in harmony in this statement, whether they said it together or they just agreed on it and they say it to Isaac. Verse 28, we see plainly that the Lord has been with you. Plain. It's, as plain, it's inescapable. We, we watch your life, 
And things happen that are outside of this universe when I watch how you live and what is going on in your life. And then verse 20, and they say, you are now the blessed of the Lord. You're the blessed of the Lord. They recognize that God's hand is on him. So let me just say this this morning. When your world is in a famine, God wants to bless you in such a way, I'm putting that in quotes, that those around you envy you and can't deny that something outside of you is at work. That's the goal. Now, I'm careful what I say here, in such a way, because I don't know what in such a way it will be. But God will bless you in some way, in some way, I don't know what way, to show off his presence in your life for your specific famine. And I don't know how he wants to do that. It could be financially. Let me pause for a moment here, because I've had this thought a couple of times in the last month. I know that we are not going down the prosperity theology road. Okay, it's not like, you're a Christian, so you should have everything you ever wanted, and if you don't, you don't have faith, and we're not, that's not where we're going. But I sometimes wonder in my own heart if I've swung so far the other way that I'm almost a little bit hesitant to say, wow, look, look at everything God's given me. Look at all the blessings that I have. God, I'm, because we're rich. I mean, come on. We're rich, I and mean, we are rolling around in everything we could ever want and more, too much. Tired of trying to make decisions in the grocery store over which toothpaste to pick or whatever. So we're blessed. And I think we need to take time to say, yeah, I'm blessed because God is blessing me. God is blessing. He's kind and he's good and he's with me and he's blessing me. Because the only alternative is to say, yeah, I'm blessed and rich because I'm really smart. I'm a good worker. I'm wise with money. How about we just say, no, I'm, I am rich and I am blessed and it's because God's with me, and his blessing is on me. Now, the way that I respond to that, then, I think should show the world that I'm not like, just like my neighbors who don't know Jesus and aren't giving God the glory for the blessings, but I do think God wants to do things in such a way, something in our lives, whether it's your health, your relationships, your emotions, how you respond to things, so they see you in your famine, they watch you in your famine, and they go, mm, I want that. I don't know what it is. Maybe it's the peace in your famine. Maybe it's the joy in your famine. Maybe it's the hope in your famine. Maybe it's the relationships of people who support you in your family, but in your famine. But there's something they see in you and they go, I'm envious. I want it. And that's what happened to Isaac. And I think that's exactly what God wants to happen to us. That we live our lives in such a way that others can see us and watch us not do it perfectly because we're all messed up. But to see us and to go, I want that. I want that. And I think God wants to do that in our lives. And many times, God doesn't only want others to see that God is blessing us, but I think he also wants them to join in us on the blessing. I think at times he wants them to be part of the blessing, to join in on the blessing. So I would say, number five, when your world is in a famine, God will bless others through you. God might want to bless other people, believers and unbelievers, through you. I mean, think about how everyone is benefiting from the success Isaac is having digging wells. If Isaac had gone to Egypt, there would be at least five less wells in Gerar. Maybe more. And the one, the one if I understood the Hebrew rate, which I'm not saying I did, but it talked about he, it was a well of spring water. So almost this idea that it wasn't just at any ordinary well, which would have been good enough. This is now, now you're hitting springs of water. I mean, they're gushing out everywhere. And so everyone's benefiting from the blessing that's on Isaac. His blessing is spilling out on all the other people that are around him in Gerar. 
And if he had gone to Egypt, there wouldn't be those wells, and those people wouldn't be receiving that blessing. And isn't that exactly what God said he was going to do through Abraham? I mean, if you want to flip back there, I'll read it. Chapter 12, the whole point of what's happening here. In chapter 12, this is when God first appears to Abraham. He goes to Abram, chapter 12, verse 1. He says, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you'll be blessed. I will bless you and those who bless you and I'm sorry, I will bless those who bless you, and who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, I, I know where this goes a whole other direction. We'll get to the gospel. But there's more to it than that. It's just the blessing. The blessing. And this is one of them. These people lived. They didn't die because they had water because Isaac. Because the blessing that was on Isaac spilled out onto their lives. So I think this is part of that fulfillment from chapter 12 on Isaac through just the water and the food for everyone else. So there's some things more about God. I want to talk for a minute about human, the human heart. The human heart. And how the human heart reacts often in times of famine. So verse, or number six here, I would say this. When your world's in a famine, fight fear with God's nearness. Fight fear with God's nearness. Look at verse six. So Isaac settled in Gerar. When the men of the place asked him about his wife, he said, she is my sister, for he feared to say. So there's, there's fear. There's this fear that's happening in Isaac's heart of what's going to happen to him because his wife, Rebecca, is beautiful. And so he does what his dad did, right? The apple doesn't fall far from the tree. And he pulls the whole, she's my sister thing. Follows in his dad's footsteps. Abimelech calls him out. Come on, dude. We could all die. I mean, even their morals are so high. Abimelech's like, um, we're going to probably get put to death if somebody sleeps with your wife, so you should have never said she was your sister. Like, they're more moral. They're more upright than he is. And then Isaac's end, end of the day when he's done talking, basically what he's saying to them is, hey, better you die for sleeping with my wife than I die by your hand. I mean, it's really what he's going after. I'd rather see you die. You guys die by taking my wife to be your wife rather than you kill me to get my wife. That, that's his heart attitude. I got words in my head that I can't use in church to describe what I think about a guy who does that. It's wrong, to say the least. And he does it, verse 6 says, all out of fear. Now I get his fear. I'm a fellow human, so I get his fear. But what are we supposed to do as we read this story, I think, is to connect the dot to what God just said to him. So God just said to him, I'm going to be with you. I am going to bless you. He goes and talks about all of his kids and how they're going to be a blessing. And then immediately, his response is to go and flat out lie and deceive those around him. And then the next time God speaks to him, verse 24, he says to him, and the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Next words, fear not. Fear not, for I am with you. So I think God recognized his fear from verse 6. He addresses it in the second appearing and says, fear not, I'm with you. You don't need to be afraid. You don't need to be afraid. I am with you. My presence is what you need. See, faith and fear don't work together. They don't cohabitate. 
The more we believe that God is with us, the more fear is squeezed out of its influence. The more you embrace and grow in the reality that God is with you, the more that fear loses its power and its grip. And so in love, God connects the dot for him and says, look, fear not, I'm with you. Fear not, I'm on your side. Fear not, I am here with you to bless you. So I don't know where you're at this morning, but I just want to ask you, in your famine, how are you doing enjoying God's nearness to fight fear? How are you doing it enjoying God's nearness to fight fear? And how are you doing it help? How are you doing getting help to do that from others? Like, hey, I'm fearful. Here's how I'm fearful. Let other people help you to find God's nearness so that you can fight your fear. It's been so good for me, in times of anxiety, to have people say, has God always been with you? Yes. Is he with you now? Yes. So I think he's going with you tomorrow? Yes. But I need to hear that like hundreds of times. Over and over and over again. Right? Millions of times. Same thing. Because I need to hear it. And that's the best way I think God wants for us to fight fear. So we read this story. I'm just going to wrap it up. Big picture. Let's, let's do a flyer over the whole chapter because it unfolds in a quite amazing way. It unfolds actually in a really crazy way. It's a time of famine. God speaks. The next thing you know, out of fear, Isaac is putting other people's lives in jeopardy, including his own wife. Then with no interruption in verse 12, what happens? God slaps Isaac and says, what are you, a moron? God says, Isaac, don't ever do that again. What does God do in verse 12? He blesses him. On the heels of his sin, we don't even, there's not even like, there's no transition sentence. It goes from Isaac's a moron to God blessed him. Isaac sins in a really wicked way. God blesses him. But that's how it unfolds. It goes instantly into blessing. He pours down blessing on him. All kinds of blessing. I don't know about you, but this story does rub me the wrong way a little bit. Tyler Jordan and I were talking about this this past week. And we're like, okay, you know what? Isaac goes, doesn't go to Egypt and instead he hangs out with God. Okay, he does a good thing. Thumbs up. Bless him. Right? He, he calls upon the name of the Lord. Okay, that's good. Bless him. Isaac pulls a stunt like he did. He gets corrected. But that's not what God does. God blesses him. He, he sins and God blesses. That doesn't, in my head. And so there's something about this is, I think is irritating. I think it's meant to irritate us, to rub us the wrong way. I don't like it or agree with God blessing him right after he so clearly sins. So how does God do it and why does God do it? And the answer is in verse 5. The answer is in verse 5. I'm going to jump down halfway into verse 4. It says, and, see that in verse 4? And in your offspring all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because. Because. What is that, a preposition? What's the word because? Thank you. Because. Prepositions are important. I just learned that. From Kate. Because, here's why. How, how is everybody going to get blessed? Because they all do the right thing. 
No, no, because Abraham obeyed my voice and kept my charge, my commandments, my statutes, and my laws. Abraham. Abraham. Wait a minute. So, so Isaac is totally messed up, but God blesses him because Abraham did some righteous things. It's like the righteousness of someone is being imputed to someone who's not righteous. Almost. I mean, you can't help but not see this as foreshadowing. We know that Abraham is not perfect. When it says that he kept all the commandments, I mean, we can go through his story and we can see like, oh yeah, he obeyed God. He did sojourn and left family behind. He did almost kill his son Isaac on the altar when he was asked to do that. I mean, he did the things that God told him to do. But we know that he can't be the substitute for Isaac. Yet this seems to be one of those moments where you go, God is trying to show us something about himself. And he's trying to show us that in in his economy, in God's way of doing things, he can credit someone else's goodness to you. It's just the beginning. It's a tiny window, just a little glimpse of God being able to say, I see you sin, I'm going to overlook it, and then because of somebody else's obedience, I'm going to bless you. It's a foreshadowing. It's giving us a sense of what it looks like when you are living through a famine. And you wonder, is God going to bless me because I'm really messed up? And you can say, yeah, I can trust that God's going to be with me in my famine. God's going to bless me in my famine because he's not looking to my righteousness to get blessed. He's looking to Jesus' righteousness to bless me. And we've talked about that a lot as a church. 1 Corinthians 5.20 God in him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's that great exchange. Your sin is imputed to Christ. His righteousness is imputed to you. And so God no longer looks at your behavior before he decides if he's going to bless you or not. Your blessing is secure because of Christ. And because of the spirit of the living God living in us, we can say with a whole other level of confidence this morning that God is with you and God will bless you. And it's not based on your behavior. And so this whole story, famine, All these things that we can learn about God and how he interacts with us during famine, these are good things to keep in mind. But at the very end of the day, if you want to have peace in your famine, live for God in your famine, know that God is with you. He's with you. Because of Jesus, he's with you. And he said he will never leave you, nor will he ever forsake you. And he's not with you to punish. He's with you to bless you. So I want to pray that over you, and then I want to give you just a minute or two just to sit. You can talk to your friends or sit quiet. And I just want you to consider for a few moments what famine you're in and maybe which one of these seven really needs to, you want to grab a hold of your heart. Is there one of the seven that you go, yep, that's the one I really need to camp out on for a while or embrace or believe? And then we'll sing a song, one, one song, because I went too long. Let me pray for us. You guys can take a minute and just enjoy God and let him talk to you. Father, thank you for your word. Father, thank you for this little glimpse of what's going to happen when Jesus comes. Thank you that you impute our sin to Jesus and Jesus' righteousness to us. What a glorious transaction. Thank you, God, that you don't give us what we deserve. God, if, if your blessing was based on my performance, there would be no blessing ever. So I thank you that today I can count on your blessing because it's not based on my behavior. It's based on the behavior of another. 
And we thank you for that this morning. Now, Spirit, minister to my friends. You know where they're at. You know what kind of famine they're walking through. You know their trial. And you know what they need to hear from you right now. And I pray in the next minute you would speak very clearly to each one of us and show us which one of these seven or something else you're going to do or say to them so they can leave here embracing truth, believing truth, so they can live through their famine in a way that is healthy and honors you. In Jesus' name, amen.